So a couple of weeks ago, we lost a great one. Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90 on October 31st. And uh, he was uh, an actor in one of my favorite movies of all time. He played uh, one of my favorite characters of all time, Dr. Jones Sr. in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, so he's Indiana Jones' dad. And uh, if you have never seen this movie, uh, I feel bad for you. Uh, and you have some homework right now. <laughs> so, um, but Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if you've never seen it, th this is the story. It's, uh, it's about Indiana Jones, who's this adventurer archaeologist, and he goes... Uh, on, a, on a pursuit to find his father who has gone missing. Uh, some Nazi bad guys have captured him because he has this diary full of notes uh, that were, are going to help them find something called the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is uh, the, supposed to be the cup that Jesus uh, drank out of at his Last Supper. Um, of course, this is all fictional. So they go on this quest and Indiana Jones is trying to find the, the Grail and he's trying to find his father. Fast forward to the end of the movie, um, Indiana Jones Sr., played by Sean Connery, is, uh, has been shot, and um, so Indiana Jones has to go through this series of booby traps, and he has to get to the, to the end where he can get the grail to save his dad. So he, he, he gets to the end, he goes into this room, and the, the, the bad guy who's kind of been along the story the whole time, his name's Donovan, he, he joins Indiana Jones into this room with a couple other people. And uh, as they get in there, they see that there's all these cups and, and goblets um, that they have to choose from. One of them is the grail, and they don't know which one. There's a knight who's this old guy sitting in the room, and he tells them that they have to uh, pick. They get, they, get a, they get one chance to pick which one they think is the grail. And they have to drink uh, from the, the water spring in the middle of the room. And if they pick the right one, uh, it'll lead to life. It'll lead to eternal life. If they pick the wrong cup, it'll bring death. So, of course, this Donovan guy just says, ah, man, I'm not a historian. I don't know which cup is the right one. And so he asks his assistant, who has ulterior motives, of course, uh, to help him. And, and she picks a cup that looks the part. It, uh, it's a cup that looks like it's fit for a king. It's, it looks like a cup for the king of kings. And, of course, this deceives Donovan, and he drinks it, and and he dies. And we get one of the most classic lines in the whole movie, which is, he chose poorly. And then Indiana Jones' turn. He picks a cup that doesn't look the part. He picks a simple-looking, ordinary cup. Because he knows it's the cup of a carpenter. It's, it's probably more like Jesus. And so he, he drinks out of that, and he, he, he gets it. He gets the right cup, and he goes and he saves his dad. Now, why do I tell you that story? Uh, I tell you that because uh, in our, our world today, it feels a little bit more and more like walking into that room with all of those cups. There's so many people that are telling us so many different things. There's so many opinions coming at us and so many uh, alternate versions of reality and alternate truth claims that are coming at us constantly. Uh, news, fake news, information, misinformation, and it gets to this point where it's like, ah, man, who do I trust? Who is telling me the truth anymore? Which one is the right one? I, I'm not sure. Who do I go to? Who's a trusted voice to help me interpret the times? There are even people we thought we could trust. They, they, we've put our trust in them for a long time, and, and they've maybe led us in the wrong direction. 
And in that kind of confusion that we can feel, it's easy for us to grab at power, kind of like this character Donovan. He grabbed at power. He, he thought that would surely be the right answer. In our digital age, it's easy for us to also grab at power. We simply have to reach for our phones. And we can use this powerful device to lash out at others or to um, find people to gather around our opinions or, or whatever it is. And we can reach for power in our frustration and in our confusion. Uh, today, we're not going to settle all these questions, but I do want to help give us something to focus on as we walk into this season of Christmas. Like Indiana Jones, we need to know our history, our biblical history, because biblical history is not just the facts, it is God's interpretation of facts and events that have happened. We might be tempted to think that our present circumstances are unique and different. But if we look back at the ancients, even though they didn't have Netflix and social media and Snuggies, uh, they faced many of the same challenges that we do today. As we look back 800 years before the birth of Christ to the prophet Isaiah, we find such a time. Isaiah's time, when he gave this prophecy, was a time of conspiracy theories. It was a time of corrupt leadership. It was a time of alternate realities and political fear. It was a time of great injustice and threats of war. It was a time of unfaithfulness among God's people and God's leaders. It was a time of division and bad alliances. It was a time when God's people reached for worldly power instead of trusting God. So to choose wisely, to be like Indiana Jones, we need to meditate on the way that God acted in the past in similar times, and this will lead us to Christmas, to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today I want to dive into the context of Isaiah. I want us to look at the significance of the name Mighty God. And we're going to look at three things. The plot at Christmas, the power of Christmas, and our posture during Christmas. First, let's look at the plot of Christmas. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, at this time, uh, so, so the northern kingdom is Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they've been divided for many, many years the northern kingdom decides to reach out and form an alliance with another kingdom north of them, which is Syria. And these two nations are going to come and, and wage war against the southern kingdom of Judah. This was known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. Now Judah's uh, king, King Ahaz, is of course scared <laughs> by this prospect. And so what does he do? Instead of trusting God, he decides to reach out to another nation himself, the nation of Assyria. Now Assyria at this time was the growing superpower. They were full of military strength and might. And so he, he believes that if he reaches out to them, they're, they're going to form an alliance. They're going to be able to take down uh, Syria and Israel. But God sends King Ahaz a message through the prophet Isaiah. This is the message that he gives. He says, don't be afraid and don't make this alliance 
with Assyria, it's going to backfire. King Ahaz proceeded to make excuses for not trusting God through this time. And so Isaiah gives him another message. He says, therefore, the Lord himself, this is Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Pastor Matt talked last week about how this had an immediate fulfillment, but it also had a future fulfillment because no child that came in that time really fulfilled fully these words. So King Ahaz believes that the way forward is through trusting in military power and strength. But God's response to this is the promise of a child. Now, as you can imagine, uh, when there's the threat of war happening in a nation, people kind of freak out. And that's exactly what the people of Judah did. And you can imagine that when people are panicked, they kind of operate out of that fear and it influences their decisions. And you can imagine that during such times, those who would seek to manipulate those who are confused and fearful will do so. Uh, the cooler heads prevail, so to speak. And it, it creates a ripe opportunity for those who wish to lead others astray to do that. So God gives Isaiah another message in Isaiah 8, verse 11 and following. He says, uh, this is what Isaiah says. He says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Uh, the question is, Who's Isaiah talking about here? Who does he mean by this people? Does he mean the Assyrians, the people outside of the kingdom? Are these the people outside of the family of God? Don't walk in their ways. Well, no. He means his people, the people of Judah and how they are currently acting. Then God says this to Isaiah. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be afraid but the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy now God here calls himself the Lord of hosts which is a military term and it means the Lord of armies uh, he's reminding Isaiah here that man, he has all military might and strength to subdue his enemies. And so Isaiah and the remnant of God's people, they don't need to get caught up in the conspiracies that are flying around them within their own people. In fact, many of the people spreading the conspiracies about the threat of war were actually going to unholy sources. They were consulting with mediums and necromancers. Those are people who talk to the dead. And they were trying to get their interpretations and their truth claims. And they were not consulting God's word. Isaiah says to them, hey, listen, like, if you're going to go to those sources, he says in verse 20 of chapter 8, if those sources don't speak according to this word, they have no light. They're not leading you toward the light. See, mediums and necromancers back then, they, they, they would have actually claimed to have represented God. Not like mediums would do today, like the Long Island medium on that TV show. They don't typically associate themselves with the God of the Bible. But back then it was not so. They would say they were speaking for God. 
So they might have a little bit more in common with today's televangelists or people that you see who claim to speak for God that really misrepresent God. They take the Bible out of context. They, they misapply the scriptures. So it's not as simple as just saying, hey, that guy using the Bible, that guy that represents God, Isaiah is told to look underneath that. So back to our question, who can we trust? Who actually represents God? How do we not fall into the trap of King Ahaz and grab at worldly power out of our fear and how do we not fall into the trap of Judah and believe competing truth claims? Isaiah's prophecy is the answer to this question. His prophecy that a child will be born, a son will be given, comes in this context and it provides for us a sign that helps us see the right way forward. Something about this hopeful promise of a child who would be a mighty God will give God's people hope and focus in a dark time. So let's move on to the power of Christmas. The power of Christmas. Isaiah 9 verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He goes on to describe how God will break the oppressor, how he will destroy the trampling warrior. But how? How does God use his power? How will God overthrow his enemies? How does God express his might? He has all might and all power. But how does he choose to express it? Does he use force? Does, does God just use force to save? Well, we get the answer in verse 6 and 7. God is going to come to show King Ahaz how power truly works. He's going to show up, not in strength and power, but as a weak human child. So two things I want us to get here about the power of Christmas. Number one, our God expresses his might by becoming like us. See, sometimes we can be like Donovan and Indiana Jones. We want a God who looks the part. We are not prepared for a mighty God who would come to us in weakness. We've grown up watching action movies where one dude goes on a vigilante mission and destroys a whole army of bad guys all by himself, which Indiana Jones is like that, by the way. But God's way is a child is born. A son is given. His name shall be called Mighty God. A child shall be a mighty God? A mighty God shall be a human child? This doesn't make sense. This is staggering to think about. It's shocking. This is not what we expect. A mighty God will come not like the Assyrians in force and power. He will overthrow his enemies, but not through military strength, but through weakness. The warrior God will lay aside his weapons and become vulnerable and make the ultimate sacrifice. And in doing so, he will show us true power, true might, and he will bring true salvation. I don't want you to misunderstand. Uh, God obviously does use force at times in the Bible. It, even in our new covenant era that we live in today, uh, God has ordained government, 
uh, to, to, for the punishment of evildoers, it says in Romans 13. And so uh, God at times ordains that force be used to restrain evil. Uh, you probably saw this video the other day of a guy being beaten up at Walmart and uh, a number of people are just kind of standing around. They're not helping at all. They're not restraining this man. And I just think, man, that, that's wrong. We, we as Christians should be the first ones in there trying to stop that kind of thing from happening. But look, force alone will not advance the kingdom of God. Force alone will not change hearts. When God chose to save us, he didn't do it through force, but through weakness. It's through weakness he overthrows his enemies. Weakness is the way. At Christmas, God became human. What makes it powerful is the incarnation. Incarnate means in the flesh. God took on flesh. But how can God Almighty become human? The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is Luke 1.35. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And, and what will be the result of God's display of mighty power? She will conceive. And a child will be born called Holy, the Son of God. The incarnation is such a great mystery in our faith. It's a staggering claim that many stumble over this reality, in fact. They stumbled over it in Isaiah's day. Isaiah warned them that, hey, you're going to stumble over this child in verse 14 of chapter 8. They stumbled over it in Mary's time. Many people didn't believe her when she said that this is how the Messiah came. And people still stumble over Christmas. J.I. Packer uh, also passed away this, this last year. He's one of the great teachers of of the evangelical church in the last uh, many decades. Uh, he lived not far from here in Vancouver, actually, and he wrote an incredible book many years ago called Knowing God. I just want to read you an excerpt from that book that uh, Packer, uh, where he unpacks kind of the, um, the incarnation and the, the, the wonders of it and, and how it makes people stumble today. Here's what he said. But in fact, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The divine son became a Jew the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. It is here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses have come to grief. It is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points of the gospel story usually spring. When we really think about God doing this thing and becoming human, we might even find ourselves stumbling over it too. 
J.R.R. Tolkien understood this well when he wrote Lord of the Rings. He showed how all these different characters in the story, they seek to take this ring of power and they want to use it, even though it was made for evil purposes, they want to use it for good. The wizard Gandalf tells Saruman that, but there is only one Lord of the Ring and he doesn't share power, speaking of the enemy. But instead, true power is found in their fellowship as a group of friends, as they're willing to sacrifice for one another and as they surrender power. Tolkien understood we all have this human need to grab at power when we think we can use it for good. But the incarnation challenges us to reconsider our ways. If we follow a God who is mighty, but gave up his might to take up weakness and ultimately death on a cross, how does that inform us as his disciples? Do we grab at power as followers of Jesus? It's not the way. It's not the Christmas way. There's a second reality of the power of Christmas I want us to get. It's that our God expresses his might by lifting up the lowly. Mary knew that God had chosen her to carry the Son of God. She was overwhelmed with joy and wrote a song of praise. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. This is Luke 1, verse 46. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Uh, Mary was just a simple Jewish teenage girl living in a, a nothing town. By her standards, the standards of the day, she was a nobody. And yet God chose her because she knew him. And he knew her. And that's all it took. And, and she knew her state before him. She calls herself uh, sinful. She says that God has forgiven her sins. Mary is someone that nobody would have expected God to choose. Of all this mighty Roman Empire, all the people God could have chosen, he chose Mary in a little town in Galilee that everybody had forgotten about, just like Isaiah had predicted. Mary's amazed that God has chosen her to carry God's son. And what is the great thing that God has done for her, she says? Well, she says, all generations will now call me blessed because a mighty God has done great things for me. What has God done for her? He's lifted up her name to be remembered for generations. He's lifted up her lowly status and made her famous. It's amazing how this works in the Bible. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, there's a story about uh, the people creating a, a, a tower in a city called Babylon or Babel. This is right after they've been told by God to go scatter out throughout the world. They say, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to create a city and we're going to build a tower. And why do they do it? To make a great name for themselves, it says. And so God comes and he squashes these plans and then they, they end up scattering. And if you just read that story, you might think, man, it seems like God is kind of a killjoy. He just kind of wants to squash all of these human plans he doesn't want people to be lifted up. But the very next story is the story of Abraham. And, and God comes to Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham, 
I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to make your name great. See, greatness isn't the issue. It's how we get there. Do we grab at it for ourselves, or do we allow God to lift us up? God is the kind of God who wants to lift up those who are humble, who know their state before him, that we're sinful and we are in need of his grace. God uses his might then to lift up the lowly, even making their names great for generations to come. This is what makes Christmas so powerful. So back to our question, uh, who can we trust? Uh, who, who should we be following? I mean, we know Jesus, but it informs also the voices that we listen to in our culture today in times of confusion. Here, here, here's the thesis I want you guys to get. In times of confusion, when there are so many choices and directions in front of us on how to live, we can pick the way that looks like Christmas. A mighty God who surrendered might to become like us and to lift up the lowly. Choose to follow voices that live like that. Choose to follow leaders who live like that. Choose to follow Jesus who is always like that. We can always trust Jesus. We can trust the baby in a manger who would suffer and die for our sins. The God who has used his might to become human to do great things for the lowly. No human leader will ever do that perfectly. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can. So what does it look like to trust him this Christmas? Our posture during Christmas, what should it be? Well, number one, I want to just say two things about this. Number one, I think it should be full of praise and pageantry. God has come down in human form. The proper response is the response of the wise men. To come and to worship and adore him, to praise him with, dare I say it, pageantry, with, with, with frills and, and pomp and circumstance, all the, the decorations and the things that we do at Christmas, to do it with all those things. Look at I bring that up because um, there, there seems to be this kind of, uh, kind of quiet movement going around many of our churches of people that are kind of stripping Christmas back a little bit. And I just want to say, you know, Lent is typically a time where we do that. We strip things back so we can focus. We get rid of things in our lives. It's a time of fasting. But historically, Christmas has always been a time, and Advent has been a time of feasting. It's been a time where we, we fill it up, we, we make it bigger, we, we celebrate in a sort of grand style because God has come to be human. It is our proper response to his grace. And look, I, if you are somebody who just kind of wants to get rid of all that stuff, uh, hey, that's totally fine, I, I, but I just want to challenge you a little bit. I want you to understand that I want you to understand something so you don't steal joy away from others through judging them for their Christmas practices. Uh, typically, uh, Christians who are a little stricter in their, their worship observances, whether that's Christmas or, or other things in their life, they fall into the category of what Paul calls the weaker person. Uh, so 
Paul says, look, there's some people in the church and they're, they're, they're weak at some things and strong at other things. And typically it's the person who's more strict who is the weaker person, who, who gets distracted by all of the stuff and, and they need that to go away. So look, if that's you, that's totally fine. But just be humble about it. And don't be careful not to set up a law that you use to judge other Christians' worship practices or Christmas worship practices. See, when Paul was dealing with a lot of false teaching in the, in the church in his day, and he would warn Timothy about this in First and Second Timothy, he often was pointing out legalistic false teaching, more often than not. That seems to be something that's more prone to happen within the church circles, is a more legalistic kind of false teaching. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You might think, man, Paul's talking about people out there outside the church who, who don't know God. But he says, look, look how he describes what they do. He says they, they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created. These are people that are within the church and they're, they're requiring stricter worship observances. Paul says they're... they're they're lying to you because, look, foods are created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, he says. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Look, good Christians can disagree on these things. Is it wrong, though, to, to put a tree in your house because, you know, pagan people used to worship trees? Well, the question Paul would ask is, well, who made trees? God did. So it's okay for you to do your worship celebrations, your, your Christmas celebrations by putting a tree in your house or, or whatever it is you do, whether it's lights or gift giving or whatever. Christmas has historically been a time of joy and celebration and pageantry, so enjoy your Christmas and try to avoid being a Scrooge to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Just enjoy your Christmas. Celebrate. Get creative. This year we're going to have to get more creative than ever. But celebrate and make it something joyful. Secondly, I think our proper response to this wonderful good news of Christmas is to practice the Christmas spirit. God has become human, and he's overthrown the powerful. He's lifted up the weak and the lowly. And so we ought to do the same. Christmas is a time for us to reach out to those who don't know him with generosity, with love, with the gospel, with good works. And I know this year is more challenging year than ever. Let us walk in the spirit of that first Christmas. You know, St. Nicholas, he embodied this, the real St. Nicholas. Nicholas was a church bishop in the town of Mira, which is in modern-day Turkey. Kevin DeYoung writes this about him. As you might have guessed, Nicholas was also revered for being a generous gift giver. Born into a wealthy family, he inherited the fortune when his parents died. Apparently, he gave his vast fortune away. 
The most famous story involved three girls who were destitute, that they were going to be forced into a life of prostitution. But Nicholas threw three bags of gold through the window as dowries for the young women. Over time, St. Nicholas became the patron saint of nations like Russia and Greece, cities like Freiburg and Moscow, and of children, sailors, unmarried girls, merchants, and even pawnbrokers. In honor of St. Nicholas, the gift giver, Christians began to celebrate December 6th as his feast day by giving presents. The tradition developed over time. See, St. Nicholas lived out the Christmas spirit in such a way that his name became synonymous with the day itself. What might it look like for us this year to live out that Christmas spirit of generosity, of love for those around us, especially those who, who don't know Jesus? Rather than making our focus all of the events of the day and interpreting all the events of the day, how might we have our focus be Christmas? I want to end with one more quote by J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. He says this, It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through the world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's prayer, parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps even a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes, passing by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. The Christmas spirit does not shine forth in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor. That means spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time and trouble and care and concern to do good to others. Central, we have such an opportunity this year. This, this year, more than any other year, maybe in our lifetime, people are living in darkness. And the church is called to shine Jesus' light, to be a light, to be a city on a hill for such a time as this. Will we be that? Will we reach out to those like we've never done before? I, I hope so. I pray that we will. But look, we know it's easier said than done, right? So let's pray and ask for God to help us be that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christmas. That God, you sent your Son, that you became human for us. You became like us, Lord Jesus. You, you, you entered our world, Lord, and you suffered a death on a cross for our sins. You rose again, Lord, and you returned to your heavenly throne. Lord, your spirit is with us today, and we just pray that you would give us that spirit of Christmas. Would you help us to, to look beyond ourselves, Lord, and to look to those around us? Would you give us opportunities this year, Lord, to spread your cheer, your joy, your love, your gospel? God, would you do that work in us? And we pray that, that people would be transformed as a result of that this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.